0: Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Coming up on Primetime Politics, aid for Atlantic Canada. 300 million dollars. Hurricane Fiona Recovery Fund. The Prime Minister unveils hundreds of millions of dollars to help rebuild after Fiona. But with tens of thousands still without power, could the government be doing more? We'll speak with the Minister responsible for the Atlantic Canada Opportunities Agency, Jeanette Petipa-Taylor.
1: Also. I'm going to be the premier of all Quebecers. With
0: a majority now larger than the one at Dissolution, what challenges remain for Francois Legault and the Coalition Avenir Québec? Not to mention the opposition parties now left scrambling for scraps after last night's vote. And...
2: Certainly not what I was hoping for.
0: Hockey Canada faces more scrutiny on the Hill. Is the organization doing enough to address sexual violence in the sport? This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Serapio. Prime Minister Trudeau traveled to Dartmouth, Nova Scotia today to announce the creation of a new Hurricane Fiona recovery fund to the tune of $300 million. We need to have a transparency and accountability, absolutely. But we also need to get the money to families as quickly as possible, especially with winter coming, especially with some of the uh, impacts to community infrastructure, and we're going to be there. Now, despite the commitment and the dollar's promise, there are still demands for more to be done. And among the calls being made is one from the Nova Scotia Premier. To talk about this, we have invited Jeanette Petitpas taylor to the program. She is the MP for the riding of Moncton Riverview-Dieppe in New Brunswick and is also the minister responsible for the Atlantic Canada Opportunities Agency. Minister, thank you for joining us.
3: Thank you for having me today.
0: So I do want to talk about your announcement, but I do want to begin here, if you don't mind, uh, with some comments that we heard from the Nova Scotia Premier, Tim Houston. Uh, As you know, there's still some 20,000 Nova Scotians without power right now, Uh, Premier Houston. Essentially, he's asking for more military support to actually address the issue. Is that something that's been discussed within Cabinet, uh, been discussed with the Defence Minister?
3: Well, I can say that ever since Hurricane Fiona arrived on ground here in Atlantic Canada, we have been in touch with all premiers of all four provinces in order to assess what was needed on the ground. And as soon as the request came with respect to the military, we were very happy that Minister Anand was able to really put that into motion right away. The Prime Minister today has a bilateral meeting with uh, Premier Houston, and I'm sure that whatever other needs are requested will be discussed today at that bilateral meeting. And again, we look forward to working collaboratively uh, with all provinces uh, to make sure that they receive the help that they need. We recognize that Atlantic Canadians are hurting right now in some areas and we want to be there and we will be there with them to support them during this very difficult time. I'm from Atlantic Canada myself. I live in Moncton, New Brunswick. We've been very fortunate in my area, but I know in other parts of Atlantic Canada and in eastern parts of Quebec, the damage has really been devastating. So we will be there to help them during their times of need.
0: Mm-hmm. Now to that, we also did hear from the federal NDP uh, leader today Jagmeet Singh, and he is uh, essentially calling on your government to provide an emergency wage supplement or or, or at least make EI available to people who cannot work right now because of Fiona. Uh, Will that happen? Is that something that's being considered?
3: Well, first of all, today, uh, Michael, being in uh, Nova Scotia, we made an announcement today uh, in order to provide financial aid to those in need. Uh, through a ACOA, through my department, we uh, have announced a $300 million um, sum of money that will be uh, available to those that will need it. This is uh, a complementary a pot of money, if you will, in order to assist people. If they don't qualify for existing programs that are already out there, they may be able to qualify for the funds. Uh, uh, requests that are going to be coming in and also we're going to be working with other federal departments like the Department of Transportation, um, DFO, uh, to make sure that when we receive those requests uh, that they will be able to be assessed and then from there we want to move forward in making sure that people um, you know receive the help they need. Uh, we recognize as I, sorry, uh,
0: we sorry recognize to interrupt. as well,
3: Sorry, to we interrupt, recognize but, you know, that
0: in British Columbia when there was flooding, EI was made available to people. I, I, I realize that the funding that you did announce today is meant to be complimentary but is there Uh, some type of EI rollout, for example, being thought of, considering that's infrastructure that already exists.
3: With respect to working with the provinces and territories, we've been very clear that we will continue uh, to meet uh, with the Premiers, to work with the Premiers on the ground, and then from there to assess the needs of what is needed uh, f- you know, for constituents, for people in Atlantic Canada. Uh, we have always been there in order to help them during their time of need, and again, we'll continue to do so. We have to also recognize that a lot of assessments are still being done with respect to exactly what type of aid will be required in the short and the long term, but I certainly want to really, my message to Atlantis Atlantic Canadians is that the federal government will be there. We will be a partner at the table in order to provide the assistance that is needed.
0: Mm -hmm. And as as you noted, $300 million being earmarked for financial aid for the region. Now, your government is also uh, providing financial assistance to the provinces through uh, uh, the disaster financial assistance arrangements. Uh, Talk to us about that, what that money will be used for and how you distinguish that fund from the $300 million that you referenced earlier
3: the disaster financial assistance program uh, or arrangement uh, is through the Department of Public Safety and they will be managing those types of uh, investments that will be made those arrangements are made uh, through working with the provinces um, that have been affected and those requests will be coming in the announcement that we made today however is uh, an amount of money above and beyond the disaster financial assistance program because we certainly recognize that there may be some groups that won't qualify for that program and we want to make sure that smaller medium-sized businesses that have been impacted by um, the hurricane that they will also have access to some funding we recognize again that it could be restaurants it could be tourism industries but in atlantic canada we also recognize that wharf small craft harbors have very much been affected by the storm as well and again we want to make sure that some monies are available in order to make those proper investments in order to make sure that that infrastructure is going to be taken care of. So there's a multitude of different programs uh, that exist out there, let it be in, um, infrastructure programs or the DFAA program. Today what we're announcing through ACOA is to make sure that this program is a complementary program because we want to make sure if some folks don't fit into the existing programs that are out there, that this fund will hopefully be able to assist them in the rebuilding and in the recovery part.
0: Okay have got less than a minute, Minister. How quickly will those funds be made available? How quickly will they actually roll out?
3: I was extremely pleased that uh, we were asked that the funds be administered and coordinated through ACOA. ACOA is our Atlantic uh, Canada Opportunities Agency, a regional economic agency that knows the region very, very well. We have over 35 service offices across Atlantic Canada. Uh, The staff through ACOA and myself have been in touch with small and medium-sized businesses already through the course of this pandemic, through the course of the hurricane. And also, uh, we've been in touch with mayors and, and premiers. So we certainly have the expertise, we can pivot very quickly in making sure that the criteria are put in place, because our objective is to make sure that the money is going to be rolling out very, very quickly. So in the next coming days, we'll be working on details of the criteria, the eligibility criteria, and then from there, we'll be moving uh, with making sure that proponents will be aware of that, and we plan on moving uh, and rolling out the money very quickly.
0: Minister Jeanette Petipa-Taylor, always nice to speak with you. Thank you for this. Thank you so much. After an often divisive campaign, the verdict was quite decisive. Francois Legault will once again be Premier of Quebec, returning to the National Assembly with an even larger majority, but also with a promise to be a Premier for All after controversial comments about immigration.
2: When I say that Quebecers form a great nation, I mean all Quebecers, from all regions, of all
1: ages. Of all origins, I'm going to be the premier
2: of all Quebecers.
0: Now, to go through last night's election results, we are inviting to the program polls analyst Eric Grenier, who provides analysis of provincial and federal elections on his website, The Writ. Eric, nice to see you. Thanks for being with us. Happy to be here. Uh, Now, the vote uh, went as expected with a second majority for the CAQ, but you know, as resounding a victory as it was for Legault, the party did fail to make gains on the island of Montreal. Uh, Can you talk to us about that, that essential roadblock for Legault?
4: I I do think that is going to be a disappointment uh, today for Francois Legault because the CAQ was hoping to make some inroads on the island of Montreal and uh, they had some expectations that they could pick up a few seats. And earlier on in the campaign they were probably in a pretty good position to do that but I think that over the course of the five weeks A lot of the statements that uh, the premier made regarding immigration and some of his candidates as well probably alienated quite a few voters on the island of montreal and uh, among anglophone voters you know who were not very happy about uh, bill 96 uh, i think it did limit the ceq's ability to uh, make some inroads on the island of montreal they had won a couple seats back in 2018 and that was seen as a big breakthrough it was seen as a big surprise and they were hoping to build on that but uh, clearly they haven't they finished in third place in the vote in terms of uh, the island of Montreal and, of course, with just two seats. They did pick up one, but they also lost one. Uh, so, for them, it, it's pretty much back to square one for them and uh, and Montreal. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, you,
0: you mentioned the Anglif- Anglophone vote and, interestingly, uh, when Legault, as you know, started the CAQ, he he was talking about right-sizing the public service getting Quebec to do better economically. But this time around, the focus really has been much more about the French language, French identity, uh, immigration to the province. I'm wondering, does Legault's victory reflect the importance of those issues to Quebecers or whether or not they actually agree that strongly? Or were they just stands that most voters did not find objectionable or objectionable enough to actually change their voting intentions?
4: I think there is two things at play here. One is that for CAQ voters just the government's management of the economy is probably still the number one issue. Uh, cost of living and things like that are still really important to Quebecers, the healthcare system. So I think that the the notion of the CAQ is a good uh, party in terms of government management probably helped them the most but the focus on French language, a lot of discussion about immigration, a lot of the discussion about immigration I think was in part because Francois go kept on making uh, gaffes in terms of that issue that made him keep talking about it but I think it was in terms of trying to keep on board a lot of the voters that they did pick up from the Parti Quebecois. The Parti Quebecois dropped quite a few uh, voters and a lot of them went to the CAQ and if you look at the map of where the CQ was able to pick up seats. It was at the expense of the Liberals where they still had some Francophone support and it was at the expense of the Parti Quebecois, particularly in Eastern Quebec. So I think that for Francois Legault, he had made the calculation that he was going to be losing some of those right-wing voters, centre-right voters, to the Conservatives. In order to keep those nationalist voters who care more about language and immigration, he had to go on those issues as well. So I think it was more of a calculation rather than an indication of where Quebecers are in terms of their uh, priorities. Mm -hmm. Now on the other side, the Liberals were able to hold on to
0: their official opposition status, but still they lost seats uh, and they also lost support among Francophone voters. So talk to us about the challenge Quebec Liberals now have in terms of finding support beyond the Anglophone and Allophone vote.
4: That is is really the biggest issue for the Quebec Liberals right now because At the end of the campaign, the polls were giving them single-digit support among francophones. This is a party that, you know, back with jean Charret or Philippe Criard, would have won the francophone vote when they formed government, and now they are barely registering. In parts of the province, uh, you know, they were at 5-6% support. You look at the Quebec City region, an area where the Liberals used to be able to win seats, they were at 5 or 6%. This is just a party that is no longer appealing to francophone Quebecers, and especially francophone Quebecers who don't live in the Montreal area, because if you look at the map now, they only hold a few seats that are in the Montreal suburbs. And then beyond that, you have to go to Pontiac in the Outaouais to find a Liberal riding. So the, the Liberals are in a lot of trouble. They did manage to hold on to official opposition status, uh, and uh, they were pretty happy about that. But this is now the second election in a row that is their worst election ever, and they need to figure out how they're going to get back into the Francophone parts of Quebec if they're ever going to form a government again. And this might be a, a bit of an example of... That is similar to what happened to the federal Liberals in the 2011 election. It required some catastrophic defeats before they were able to really refresh and rebrand themselves, because the Liberals really desperately need a rebranding of some kind, because right now they're just not appealing to that uh, francophone mass of voters that decide elections in Quebec.
0: Now, that brings us to the other party that historically has governed the province for the past uh, four or five decades, because the Parti Quebecois, they too lost seats. Uh, They fell short of official party status within the National Assembly. Has the CAQ effectively laid claim to the issue of sovereignty and and taken it away from the Parti Quebecois?
4: Yeah, more or less. And it it is a little ironic because uh, Francois Legault said that he was getting into politics to get beyond that federalist-sovereignist divide that has uh, really uh you know been the feature of elections in quebec since the 1970s and he has effectively taken it off the table that the Parti quebecois now is just getting the support of primarily people who care most about independence and while support for sovereignty for quebec still generally is in the 30 to 35 percent range in polls it's just not a priority for a lot of even those sovereignists they rather vote for a party like the caq that has given uh, Quebec a lot of the things that sovereigntists wanted just more autonomy uh, within uh, within you know the government and he has taken the fight to uh, Ottawa more than you know federalist liberal premiers would have in the past but not going so far as to alienate people who don't want all of the uh, the tumultuousness of a referendum campaign. So he has effectively taken that issue off the table and that's why that he has been doing so well and eating a lot of the PQ vote. You look at some of the places where the CAQ was strongest, one of them was in the Saguenay-Lac-Saint-Jean. That used to be Hussain-Bouchard's area. It was a part of the province that was so strongly sovereigntist, and now it is strongly CAQ and it, I think it shows how effective they have been in just eating the PQ's lunch.
0: Mm-hmm. And very quickly, as we're running out of time, I do want to talk about uh, Quebec's other day because there was talk of them perhaps becoming official opposition. That did not happen. Where did Quebec Solidaire fail to gain ground?
4: Yeah, it was just off the island of Montreal again. You know, they did lose a seat in abitibi Miskamang. They managed to hold on a couple of seats in Quebec City and one in Sherbrooke. Uh, but for them, it is just a, a little bit of a roadblock for them. They've managed to make progress in every election since they were formed. They did gain one seat, uh, but they dropped a little bit in the vote. So for Quebec Solidaire, a little bit of a missed opportunity. They wanted to become the alternative to the CAQ. They'll have to wait at least another four years before they can try that again.
0: Okay. Eric Grenier, always great to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you. Hockey Canada is once again defending its actions to a parliamentary committee, defending its leadership, addressing how allegations of sexual assault have been handled and where the organization found money to settle those cases out of court. The Minister of Sport is calling for a change in leadership, but the organization is pushing back.
2: Our board, frankly, does not share the view that senior leadership should be replaced on the basis of what we consider to be substantial misinformation and an unduly cynical attacks. Um, you know, I appreciate that others disagree with us, but our positions are based on the information that we have and an understanding that Hockey Canada has an excellent reputation. At this point, with the current leadership, uh, I've, I don't have hope. Uh, that, they're, that they have the capacity to renew themselves from within. That's why I'm calling for uh, the 13 voting members to impose that change at Hockey Canada.
0: Now for her thoughts, we are reaching out now to Teresa Bailey. She is the founder of Canadian Hockey Moms and speaks often about the state of minor hockey in this country. Ms. Bailey, thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Listen, I want to begin with your reaction to the revelation that there was not one, but two funds created by Hockey Canada to allegedly settle sexual assault claims. What's your reaction to that?
2: I think that it, again, leads to more questions than answers for me. And it, um, my understanding is that Hockey Canada doesn't define this as an asset, that it was a fund set up uh, for the members, so the provinces and, but similar to the initial fund uh, for the, the same purposes. So my question is, if they knew that that was, fund was there, why didn't they offer that information before? And the lack of bringing that forward just leads to more questions around transparency.
0: Mm hmm. mm -hmm. And many people are are talking about that. We should point out, though, that Hockey Canada says that since its creation, the second fund has not been used to settle any case. But it's still money, according to the Globe and Mail, which broke the story. uh, It's still money that the Globe and Mail says was collected through player registration fees. I would imagine that hockey parents such as yourself would find that very alarming.
2: I think that that's been a question from the beginning. Why were we never told this? And how do you even begin to find that information out? And uh, that, I think, is the biggest problem, that there is maybe no avenue. Well, I know there's no avenue to get the answers to this question without the Globe and Mail, for example, digging into it. And a lot of the questions could be easily alleviated if the information was more readily available, but it does not seem to be the case. And I think parents are frustrated that they don't understand where their money's going to. And I think everyone's frustrated that it's, it's not been handled differently.
0: Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, Pascal I the Minister of sport, she says that uh, Hockey Canada needs new leadership and she says it needs new leadership for treating sexual violence as an insurance problem rather than a systemic problem, a word that you yourself used. Uh, what do you think can be done? Because I'm wondering about the practical impact for any parent out there that's thinking about perhaps enrolling their child in hockey this these types of stories i'm sure gives them reason to pause
2: yeah i think it's a real problem and i think uh i think that in terms of leadership i'm another thing that was said during um the questioning today was that hockey canada has a great reputation and one of the mp's mentioned well it seems like uh, you all think you're doing a great job, but if you ask the rest of Canada, they're not so sure. And I think, as leaders, uh, I'm not sure that they're necessarily listening, or that people feel that they can speak up um, in these town halls that they're having. I don't know where they are. I don't know where the survey's going. That has I don't know who's done the survey, or or even how many people are being asked to complete the survey uh, for community input. And the the fact is even if parents felt like um, they had something to say, if you speak out against people, uh, you know that you could forever there could be repercussions forever for you or your child in the system and I suspect that's the same case actually on the board I cannot believe that everyone on the board felt like uh, they should handle this the same way the fact that there are no minutes uh, tells me that there were probably some for and against handling the way that it was but no one wants to go public against people who might still be in power later because it would probably mean their end in terms of involvement with Hockey Canada.
0: Mm-hmm. So what do you think is a practical solution? Is there one at this point?
2: Uh, it's. I know that there is a new board of directors being elected. I hope that it's a board that has diversity. I think there needs to be diversity across all levels of hockey, whether it's from Hockey Canada down to the grassroots level. I think that that's one way to change uh, the, the problems that are happening here. And I think also that there's an opportunity to gather information get input in a way that th- they say they're doing that through the survey and through the um, town halls but I'm, I'm not sure that that's necessarily happened because even the survey questions have been um, they've been frustrating people because it's more about the appearance of how things are being handled uh, as opposed to actual real change and I think the other thing maybe that should happen or that should definitely happen is training governance training across the system, grassroots all the way up. I know that everyone running minor hockey, there's no um, there's no required governance training to deal with conflict or to really understand the implications of what they're dealing with. And I think that that's an important uh, process. I have no idea what the governance training is, even of the board of directors at Hockey Canada but you really understand um, that and make it consistent across all of the member agencies would be important. The action plan that's come out, I feel, is a, a reaction plan and we'll see, we'll see what happens.
0: Well, we are watching. Uh, Teresa, thank you for this. Really appreciate the time today. Thank you. Let's turn now to the matter of the environment as a number of reports were tabled in Ottawa today. They come from this country's environmental commissioner who says Fisheries and Oceans Canada is moving too slowly in efforts to protect aquatic species. Commissioner Jerry DeMarco joins us now. Commissioner, thank you for being here. Glad to be here, Michael. Now, you tabled six reports today in the House of Commons, but you know the one that's really getting the most attention, uh, initially at least, is your report about protecting aquatic species. Uh, Now, that report, uh, it basically says that there's a bias against listing species that, while at risk, are not listed as needing protection because they're also commercially viable. What do you mean
1: by that? Yes, so Canada has a Species at Risk Act, which is meant to protect and recover those species that are in the most trouble. In this case, a few hundred aquatic species, including a couple hundred fish. But Department of Fisheries and Ocean is reluctant to use that legislation to protect those species that have commercial value. Now, is that definitive? Did you uh, compare that
0: against, for example, non-commercial species?
1: Yes, we have uh, in our report, we set out in graphical form the uh, evidence of that bias, lots of uh, aquatic species that are found in freshwater and are not commercially valuable, easy to have them listed by the department. Those that are predominantly in saltwater and subject to commercial fisheries, very few of those have been listed for protection.
0: Now, is that a political choice, do you think, or or is it the environment taking a backseat to jobs? What is the rationale, do you think, around it?
1: Well, it looks to us as a, an example of short-term economics trumping long-term sustainability issues but our view is that if you take a long-term view the environmental interests and the economic interests should align because communities uh, the uh, fishing fleets and so on they all rely on a sustainable uh, fish stock and so does the ecosystem so It's a case of short-term economic gain, trumping long-term sustainability. Uh, I think, though, up against it are are things like the memory of what happened to the
0: cod fishery in in Newfoundland. How do you address a challenge like that when really people are concerned about what listing something as endangered or in need of protection might actually do to their livelihoods?
1: Well, that's a great example because cod has never been listed for protection and it's been managed solely under the fisheries act for decades and it was under that legislation that the collapse occurred and the mismanagement of the cod fishery occurred. So, it can't be used as a, as a reason for not listing it now because that's an example of a fish that should have been listed, and the science said, said that it should have been listed. They didn't list it, and the population crashed from 100% to 1%. Mm-hmm. But if there is this hesitancy to
0: put uh, species that are in need of protection on the list itself, how do you address a challenge like that? Is that a cultural challenge uh, to be addressed within the civil service?
1: yeah, it's a matter of uh, getting folks to look at things in a longer term view. And I know there are a lot of pressures, both politically and within the bureaucracy, to discount the future and to focus on short-term deliverables. And there's pressures from communities that uh, that are that are uh, reliant on fishing. But those same communities require long-term sustainable stocks to to uh, to sustain those communities. So that's what I was saying. you know the the long-term sustainability is the place where, Economic interests and ecological interests should align. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Now, that may actually build on another point that you made because you, you are also calling out some government departments for failing to do a better job at uh, species protection. What exactly, uh, or rather, which departments are you concerned about? What impact does that lack of specificity actually have on, on what you're trying to achieve?
1: Yeah, so that's our sustainable development report, and it looks at uh, fisheries and oceans, the same one as aquatic species report, plus Environment and Climate Change Canada, plus Parks Canada. So those are the three lead agencies in delivering on the sustainable development strategy goal rela- relating to species at risk recovery. And there we're seeing a, uh, a troubling lack of results, really. Seven or eight years now, they've been stuck at reaching only about 40% of their target for recovering species at risk. The short term target is 60% and the long term target, of course, is 100% to try to prevent these species from extinction. So what would
0: you have them do then? Now that you've pointed out the problem, what would you like to see?
1: Well, there needs to be more of a focus on results and measures to actually protect and recover species. There's a lot of process involved, a lot of deliberations. Uh, the Fisheries and oceans can take up to 10, 11 years just to decide whether to protect a species or not. In the meantime, the species is in trouble. These are the species that are in the emergency room of biodiversity, just a few hundred out of the tens of thousands of species in Canada. So they need urgent action and they can't afford long bureaucratic processes that, uh, that we're seeing now. Commissioner, thank you for this. Really appreciate the time today.
0: Thank you. And that is our program for tonight. On behalf of everyone here at CPAC, thank you for watching. I'm Michael Serapio. We'll see you tomorrow.